Every single person lives their life in pursuit of something that they believe will grant them rest. And rest means more than just the cessation of activity or a temporary relief from work. Rest is about complete fulfillment. It's about total satisfaction. It's when a human being attains the end for which he was created. And the great theologian Augustine in his famous work, Confessions, writes, Because you have made us for yourself, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. So Augustine recognizes one of the key themes of Hebrews 3, 1 to 4, 13. That only in the pursuit of Christ do we find lasting rest. God made us to worship him, which means all sin pulls us away from our ultimate purpose. Sin hardens us to the goodness of God and leaves us without that rest. And repentance is when we turn our mind away from the corrupt darkness and evil in the world and receive the only thing that brings eternal satisfaction, God himself. And so the ultimate goal of our life is union with God, that we would be known by him and know him fully, that we would worship him and be the creatures that God created us to be. This is Understanding Hebrews. The book of Hebrews encourages Jewish Christians who are tempted to turn back to Judaism in order to avoid persecution to endure by considering the supremacy of Jesus over the angels. So Jesus, with regard to his human nature, reigns as God's son or God's king over all the angels. And with regard to his divine nature, he reigns over all the angels and all of creation as a second person of the Trinity who laid the foundations of the earth from the beginning, right? Who is unchanging and eternal. And so to turn from the new covenant under Christ back to the old covenant, to Judaism, is treason against God. You're not just turning away from some human rabbi. You're turning away from God himself in the flesh. So in Hebrews 3, 1 to 4, 13, we see two more comparisons that demonstrate the superiority of Jesus and the new covenant over the old. We see a comparison between Jesus and Moses and also a comparison between Jesus and Joshua. And in both of these comparisons, we see a ratcheting up of both the blessings and the curses of God. And if Christians endure persecution for the sake of Christ, they're going to inherit great blessing. And by faith, even in the present, they can inherit a blessing of rest, of fellowship with God. But if they turn away from the gospel message, if they turn away from Christ, they turn away from the rest that God promises. And we're going to see the dire consequences for that. So let's start by looking at the first six verses of chapter 3, where we see a comparison between Jesus and Moses. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Hebrews 3 begins by calling believers holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. We're brothers with Christ, which means we share in his holiness and his heavenly calling, his heavenly mission. The Father sent the Son into the world with a calling to reveal the person and work of God to sinful humanity. 
And in this sense, Jesus operates as the prototypical apostle, which simply means sent one. Jesus passes on this sentness from God to his apostles in John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So the apostles get sent from the sent one, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the prime apostle of God, so to speak. So Christ not only comes on behalf of God as his final revelation, but we also learn he comes on behalf of men as a high priest. So Jesus as a high priest, which Hebrews is going to elaborate on further in other chapters of the book, uh, and as an apostle, forms the foundation of our confession. To confess means to speak the same. We must hold fast our confession by continuing to speak the same message, to believe the words of the gospel that Jesus, our apostle and high priest, spoke to us. Jesus' status as an apostle, as a high priest, as God in the flesh, as the exalted Son of Man, all of these show that he possesses greater glory than even Moses. Moses is kind of like the George Washington of Israel. He's this founding figure whose shadow looms large. And to say that Jesus is greater than Moses is not to denigrate Moses, but rather to exalt Jesus. Hebrews acknowledges Moses was faithful, a faithful servant of God, but Jesus Christ surpasses him in key aspects. Hebrews says that much like a builder of a house possesses greater honor than the house itself, so also Jesus, the builder of the house of God, possesses more honor than Moses. Moses served as a servant in the house, whereas Jesus serves as a son. A son possesses a house by natural right. He has an inherently greater authority than a servant. Likewise, Christ's position over God's people, God's house, we learn that we are God's house, surpasses that of Moses. Again, this is to elevate the status of Jesus. Jesus is greater because he's the son. Moses was a great servant, but that's a far cry from being a son. And what's interesting, too, is that Moses' faithfulness as a servant consists in testifying to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses and the Old Covenant serve as a shadow to the substance of Jesus and the New Covenant. Shadows are a temporary pointer to a person, right? And when the person shows up to which the shadow leads, we don't continue talking to the shadow. We talk to the person. It'd be very strange if you kept talking to the shadow or you talk to the shadow at all. You know that a shadow is merely a pointer toward a real substantive person. In the same way, Moses served the temporary shadow of the old covenant in order to point to the greater substance of Jesus and the new. And now that the substance of Jesus Christ has come, we no longer need to look at the shadow. The shadow has served its purpose. So those who want to turn back to Moses and the old covenant are turning back to the shadow when the person has come. And if they go back to Moses, all Moses is going to do is point them back to Christ because he testifies to things that were to be spoken later. Moses is a prophet who is paving the way for us to see a fulfillment of that prophetic office in Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know this works? Well, because the author of Hebrews attributes divine authorship to Psalm 95, which he's going to comment on. The same divine author of the Old Testament and Old Covenant is the same divine author of the New Covenant, right? The scriptures we see have one divine author with multiple human authors. And because there's one divine author, the Holy Spirit, because these words are God-breathed, and you see an early understanding of the inspiration of scripture, we should expect a cohesion between the Old Testament and the New, between the prophets and the apostles. And Hebrews picks up on that cohesion 
because the Holy Spirit is the author of both New and Old Covenant, both New and Old Testament. So we should expect a cohesion, and he's going to bring that out in verses 7 to 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ." If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So Hebrews quotes Psalm 95, and Psalm 95 begins with an exaltation of God's deliverance along with a warning of judgment. So just as God delivered the old covenant Israelites out of slavery under Pharaoh into freedom with God by covering them with the blood of a sacrificial lamb, so also God delivered the new covenant church out of slavery to sin and death to freedom with God through the blood of a sacrificial lamb. But both the old covenant and the new covenant require faith. They require believing the promise of God. The Israelites revealed their hard hearts by their constant grumbling against God. They claimed that God brought them out of slavery to kill them in the wilderness. They complained about God's provision and longed for the food of Egypt. Their ingratitude revealed a heart of unbelief that says to God in light of all of his goodness that he's a liar, that his promises aren't good, and they didn't make it to the end. And in the same way, in the new covenant, believers must endure by faith until the end. Now, I believe that the faith that genuine believers have will endure to the end, but there's still a willful faithfulness that is required, that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. And so, what we see here is Psalm 95 uses the wilderness experience of that first generation of Israelites as a warning to all generations. A hard heart of unbelief cuts you out of God's rest. There were some Israelites who, yeah, they escaped from Egypt. They were now free. They experienced the temporal blessings of God, but they didn't have a genuine heart of faith. And because of that, they died in the wilderness. They didn't make it to the end because they were not converted. It is quite possible to experience the external blessings of God, but not understand the true blessing of an actual heart transformed by God. And we're going to see that later on in the book of Hebrews. But if you think about the way that the wilderness experience challenges us, we notice that sin hardens through deception. That's why each day we have to exhort one another not to grow hard-hearted, not to be tricked and swindled by sin. If we allow bitterness to creep in unchecked, that bitterness will fester and our hearts will grow cold to God. And repeated hardness towards God's word reveals that we never really knew him in the first place. So just as unbelief brought about the judgment of death for that first generation, so also unbelief brings about eternal death for us. He says, look, all those people who experienced the external blessing of deliverance from slavery, 
nevertheless never made it to the final rest. They died in the wilderness because it's not enough just to say, look at all these external blessings. You actually have to have a transformed heart that responds to the word of God, that obeys the word of God, and that loves and trusts God. In other words, you need genuine faith. So don't act like those old covenant Israelites who refuse to believe God's word. Repent and believe while his promise of rest still stands. Interesting way of phrasing that. And we're going to see why he phrases it that way in chapter 4 verses 1 to 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So Hebrews claims that the rest promised to that first generation of Israelites extends beyond their day to ours. And we know this because Joshua brought Israel into the promised land, but David, who wrote Psalm 95 generations later, while he's in the promised land, still speaks of a future rest. So entrance into the land does not exhaust the rest that God promises his people. That's why Jesus is greater than Joshua. In fact, Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus, Yeshua, right? And so the greater Yeshua is going to bring about a greater rest than the original Yeshua. Now, God rested on the seventh day, and that's referred to in Hebrews 4 as God's Sabbath rest. And he rested not because he ran out of energy, but because his work of creation reached its goal. And we too reach the goal of our life when we believe and enter into the rest of God by fellowship with God through Christ. So there's a sense in which that rest, notice he says God's rest has been available since the creation of the world. So even before Israel received the promise of rest into the land, there was a rest that was available from the beginning of creation. Well, what is that rest? It's the rest that we have with God. When we are in right relationship with God, when we are reconciled to our creator. So the Old Testament and New Testament believers alike can access that rest that extends beyond the temporal rest of freedom from slavery and even the temporal rest of living in a prosperous land. There is an eternal rest, a spiritual rest for our souls that comes when we are reconciled to God by his grace. But the rest that we have with God contains an already but not yet aspect. We enter into rest with God by faith, but we also strive toward what's called an eschatological rest or an end times or a full rest that comes when God brings about new creation 
and resurrection. So there's a present sense of rest that we participate in now, but there's also a future sense of rest that is not yet a reality for us. Tom Schreiner writes this in his commentary on Hebrews. The rest is fundamentally eschatological, and yet the eschaton has penetrated the present. Believers enter God's rest, which has been accessible since the day of creation, but they have not entered the fullness of his rest, for they must continue to believe and obey until the end to obtain it. So we enter into God's rest in the present, but we also strive toward the fullness of that rest by continued faithfulness by endurance through the trials that we face in life. Think about an adopted child who receives with his adoption an inheritance to an estate. As a minor, he possesses the inheritance, but not in the fullness in which he will possess that inheritance when he comes of age. He must strive toward maturity in order that he might receive the fullness of the inheritance. And yet in the midst of his striving, in the midst of him growing up into full possession, he still enjoys in part the blessings of sonship as a foretaste. So also in this life we possess God's inheritance of rest, but that full possession awaits a future date. And so we must strive toward maturity that we might come of age and receive our final rest when we finish our race. Yet we can enjoy a foretaste of that rest in the present. By faith we enter God's kingdom, and yet we wait for his kingdom to come. We've risen with Christ, and yet we await the resurrection of our bodies. We are saved, and yet we are being saved. In, in other words, the full effect of salvation and deliverance from sin and death awaits a future date. And so we live in that tension in various aspects of the Christian life. And this tension actually explains our experience of life. On the one hand, we see powerful deliverance and the works of God in the church. And on the other hand, we see devastating sin and apostasy. And so the tension that God's kingdom is already here, but not yet full, that our rest is already here, but not yet complete, shows us that, yes, we enter God's rest by faith. And yet we continue to strive to enter God's rest through faithfulness of life. And both of these realities harmonize. There's an already and a not yet. Already rest that we can experience now, and yet a not yet fullness that we will get when we come of age, when we finish our race. An effort in the Christian life does not mean works righteousness. We must strive to enter that final rest by heeding the word of God's living and active power. So God's word is described as a, as a sword that cuts us. It reveals our thoughts and intentions. We're naked and exposed before the word. Quite literally, our head gets bent backwards to face God. So God's warnings serve as a means by which he preserves us. So this is not saying you can lose your salvation. It's saying that those who persevere to the end by faith do so through the means of heeding the warnings that God gives to us. God's warnings are his way of keeping us on the path. So how do you know that you're going to endure until the end? Well, you respond to his word today. Those who belong to the Father heed his voice of warning. My sheep will hear my voice. So the voice of warning speaks by the Spirit in the word of God. And what that means is, if you hear this verse prick you today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And that, that brings you to repentance. That's a good sign. That means you belong to God. That's a sign that you possess the present rest that will lead to final rest. So God softens our hearts through the sharpness of his cutting word. And each day he graciously speaks to us that we might not fall into the hardness of heart that the first generation possessed. He wants us to have genuine faith, and he awakens that faith with 
his word, that we respond. And by responding, we show that we belong to him. So Hebrews does not allow us to leave untouched. As we hear this passage read out loud, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's the Holy Spirit speaking right now to you, to everyone who hears this. You're hearing his voice now. God's speaking now through his word. And the question is, how are you going to respond? The day of salvation is open today for you to enter his rest. What are you going to do? See, as soon as you read Hebrews, you're actually wrapped up into the narrative of the Bible. Because the same God who spoke to that wilderness generation, who spoke through David to his generation, who spoke to through the author of Hebrews to his generation, and now to us through Hebrews, it's the same God. And he's calling us to the same faith and repentance that he's required through all ages. And the question is, how will you respond now that you've heard his voice? 